Hello, fellow foodies, and welcome back. This is Dr. Cassandra Quave, and you're listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. In this episode, we're going to take a closer look at an agricultural product known as glyphosate, which you may better know by its commercial name of Roundup. Glyphosate is an organophosphorus compound that is used to kill weeds that compete with crops, especially against annual broadleaf weeds and grasses. You may even have some of it in your home garage. But you may also be wondering, is it safe? And what's the legal history around this product? When the global conglomerate Bayer AG paid $63 billion in 2018 to buy Monsanto Company, the deal was seen as a boost to Bayer's wealth and power. But only two years later, Bayer was forced to agree to pay $11 billion to settle the claims of more than 100,000 cancer victims who alleged that their suffering was caused by the use of Monsanto's flagship herbicide Roundup. That settlement may never have happened without Lee Johnson, whose story is told in the new book, The Monsanto Papers, Deadly Secrets, Corporate Corruption, and One Man's Search for Justice. This book tells the inside story of Lee Johnson's landmark lawsuit against Monsanto after a workplace accident left him doused in Monsanto's herbicide and facing a deadly cancer. He was the first to take Monsanto to trial, drawing attention from around the world as his case became one of the most dramatic legal bat battles in courthouse history. Now, let me introduce you to our guest today. Carrie Gillum is a veteran journalist, researcher, and author with more than 25 years of experience in the news industry covering corporate America. Her 2017 book about pesticide dangers, known as Whitewash, the story of a weed killer, cancer, and corruption of science, won the 2018 Rachel Carson Book Award from the Society of Environmental Journalists and has become part of the curriculum in several university environmental health programs. Gillum's reporting and writing have le led her to become recognized as an international expert on corporate control of agriculture and the health and environmental impacts of, pe of a pesticide-dependent food system. She left Reuters in late 2015, becoming a research director for the nonprofit organization U.S. Right to Know, an investigative group focused on exposing corporate wrongdoing and government failures that threaten the integrity of our food system, our environment, and our health. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Carrie. I'm really excited to be here with you and talk about your latest book here on the Monsanto Papers. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to talk to you today. Yeah. So why don't we start with some basics? What can you tell us about Roundup? I think many people in the audience have heard of this product and have seen it in store shelves. Um, what does this actually do and how is it used in agriculture? Sure. So glyphosate, uh, as you told your listeners, is the active ingredient in Roundup weed killer. That's how most people know it. Uh, they know the name Roundup. They see it in Home Depot or Lowe's or you know any sort of lawn and garden store. It's sold around the world. It's also sold in many other brands of weed killers and herbicides. Uh, Monsanto introduced glyphosate as a weed killer in 1974. And you know it it really revolutionized agriculture. Of course, it's used by people in their you know at their homes and their lawns and gardens to kill weeds. It's used you know by golf course operators and school districts and anywhere you've got unwanted you know vegetation, um, but pretty heavily in agriculture by farmers to kill weeds in their fields. 
and uh, you know it was it was popular because it was so effective um, and and very efficient, and also because Monsanto always advertised it as so much safer than other herbicides that were out on the market at the time. The explosive growth of glyphosate or Roundup really took off uh, in the 1990s when Monsanto introduced genetically engineered crops or what we call GMOs. And these first genetically engineered crops were designed not to be more nutritious or you know, do better in drought or yield better, but they were designed to do one thing. And that was to tolerate the spraying of Roundup or glyphosate right over the top of soybeans or corn or cotton or canola. Um, so that farmers could very easily treat weeds in their fields by simply going out. They didn't have to worry about killing their crops. They could just spray directly over them with Roundup or glyphosate. So the use of this chemical, as I said, exploded around the world when these GMOs were introduced. And it is the most widely used weed killer in the world in all of history. It's now so ubiquitous in our environment that it's found, you know, not only in our food and our water, uh, but also in air samples uh, and, and uh, rivers and creeks. And it's even been found by government researchers in rainfall. Um, so it's a pretty important chemical in our lives that maybe a lot of people don't know about. Yeah, that's huge. I guess it really seems to be one of those things that supports monocropping or the growth of just a single species, in this case, often GMO'd um, varieties of, of plants, of, of crops. Um, it, it's interesting too how our agriculture has shifted from in the past where we had, you know, plants had their own kind of defenses in most in most cases to kind of defend them against pests, and now we've we've bred out a lot of those natural defenses and instead spray on these um, synthetic um, defenses and and also um, agents that can remove competitors. I guess. The question, though, is really how safe are these products? And your your first book, um, Whitewash, focused on exposing some of Monsanto's deceptive tactics with respect to the science around Roundup. What what can you tell us about that, and how does that story differ from your newest book on the Monsanto Papers? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, the first book, Whitewash, uh, really was so I worked at Reuters, which is an international news agency, and I was assigned in 1998 actually to start covering agriculture and Monsanto and other big companies like DuPont, Pioneer, Syngenta. And so I was learning, um, and whitewash is really the result of all of this education that I got really out in the farm fields and spending time at Monsanto's headquarters and uh, really understanding and learning about this interplay between these chemicals, glyphosate and other agricultural chemicals, and the impact on food and farming and production and health and environmental health. So I was writing all of these articles and the publisher came to me and said, would you write a book about what you've learned? Mm -hmm. And that's where Whitewash came from. It's really a compilation of a lot of not only on the ground information and stories about Monsanto and its marketing of this Roundup Ready crop system and Roundup, but also about uh, the environmental impacts and the science that has been building really ever since the 1980s, building, showing it's not as safe as Monsanto always said it was. And part of that is because it's been so, I say overused, mm -hmm. uh, used so heavily 
it replaced or, um, you know, in a large part replaced many other herbicides that farmers were using. Uh, but as it did so, weeds became resistant to glyphosate. So you had more and more acres where farmers were finding that they had to put more and more of the glyphosate on the ground or on the crops. And now we're to a point where weed resistance is just so extreme that many farmers are using not only glyphosate, but they're adding back these chemicals that they had you know, been able to reduce. So like dicamba or 2,4-D, which was part of Agent Orange. Uh, you're seeing paraquat, which it causes Parkinson's disease. Uh, so it's really whitewash is all about that is sort of revealing the science and the impacts of the overuse of this chemical. The name whitewash came from the fact that a very big part of the story is how Monsanto hid the dangers um, of this chemical, even as they were pushing it to historic use and how they whitewashed or made it look better uh, mm -hmm. than it really was. And it's a just, it's a tragic story of just, um, you know, Monsanto, we knew, we saw that they were ghostwriting scientific research, that they were manipulating and in many ways colluding with officials inside the EPA to suppress science showing the harm. So uh, it, it was an expose, I guess a lot of people refer to it as an expose, and um, it really revealed 40 years of deception uh, that Monsanto had engaged in around this product. The new book, you ask about the new book. Yeah, yeah. How is that different? Um, so the Monsanto Papers is a much more um, personal story. And I, I guess I say it's the story of the, the result of all of the deception. And so mm -hmm. when you have all this deception, you have all these people saying, gosh, this is so safe. We can spray it on our food and we can spray it in parks and playgrounds where kids uh, play and our dogs roll around. And we don't really have to worry about wearing protective gear because it's really, really safe. So the, the results of that are a lot of people who have developed non-Hodgkin lymphoma, a type of cancer uh, that the International Agency for Research on Cancer determined, you know, has a asso direct association to glyphosate or Roundup exposure. They determined glyphosate was a probable human carcinogen based on years and years of research and uh, that this exposure can cause non-Hodgkin lymphoma. So the Monsanto Papers, the second book, is really about um, one man, the very first man to ever take Monsanto to trial, uh, to try to challenge them on this. He has a form of non-Hodgkin lymphoma that his doctors have told him is terminal. Um, he so far outlived his diagnosis. They gave him 18 months to live uh, when, they, when they told him that. And he's outlived that now by gosh, about two years. Um, but it's really a very personal story about what it means to have cancer, to fight cancer, to suffer, to struggle, and what it means to try to hold a giant company like Monsanto accountable uh, in a court of law. So, you know, people have compared it to a John Grisham novel, like there's a lot of twists and turns mm -hmm. and sort of plot, uh, you know, things that happen. And it's, there's so many things that went on as I was watching this and reporting as a journalist that I just kept saying, my, you know, that is, I can't believe that happened, or this is so heartrending, or this is fascinating. And so I thought I've just got to write a book about it. So yeah, oh, absolutely. I And I think it's such an important point that, you know, this goes beyond science and understanding of, of, of outcomes in human health. This is about real human lives, and how their lives are impacted. And 
what can you tell us about Lee Johnson? Um, what was what was his life like before these exposures? And did he have kind of a chronic, consistent exposure to these chemicals, or was it an acute exposure? And I guess extending beyond that, are most people getting more chronic exposures? I'm thinking of groundskeepers and people that work, you know, with with taking care of golf courses or farmers also that are using this product and perhaps not always using all the correct safety gear. Right. Lee had both. Um, <laughs> so mm -hmm. Lee, Lee Johnson, I sort of think of him as sort of just, you know, every man, you know, any man. I mean, he was, you know, um, just a guy trying to make it, you know, trying to make a living mm -hmm. to support a family, he had two little boys married, living in uh, uh, Vallejo, California. Mm -hmm. And you know, had worked a whole lot of different jobs in his life, kind of had a hard upbringing, um, didn't graduate college, but he had managed to get this job, work his way up, uh, and he was working as a school groundskeeper for the mm -hmm. Benicia School District and making pretty, you know, decent money for, you know, he was very happy with his five-figure salary, and he could afford a decent home uh, for his family, and he took pride in his work, and he mm -hmm really studied, you know, labels and wanted to be sure these chemicals he was spraying as a groundskeeper, you know, that he got them on before any kids were out in the area. And he did wear protective gear. Mm -hmm. And he knew, you know, that they're with any chemical, you know, that there's always some sort of risk to your health. Um, but not only did he, on a really regular basis, have exposures, he was spraying Monsanto's, you know, glyphosate-based herbicides. Um, but he had a couple of accidents and one, uh, you know, you, you meet Lee and then you're with him uh, in the first chapter of this book uh, as he, you know, is spraying these chemicals and he has his first accident where a, a tank, he's using a giant tank sprayer and the hose comes disconnected and then big fountain sprays into the air and he sort of dives in to try to, you know, clean it all up and shut it down before it can uh, mm -hmm. leak down and get into the waterways. And so he has this very acute exposure on top of the regular chronic exposures. And, you know, it's not too long after that, that he starts to see lesions pop up on his skin and, you know, begins this journey to figure out, gosh, what happened to me? And, you know, what am I going to do about it? Yeah. I could see that happening to just anybody, <laughs> you know, it's, it's yeah. just, it's, 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 um, not, wouldn't be so uncommon to have this kind of issues just as you're working in the grounds. And, I guess as you're as you were working on this book, um, who are you really writing this for? I mean, what what was your goal or your targeted audience for this book? Well, you know, the first thing that comes to when people ask me that is is people who have cancer because mm -hmm. I've just become so aware. I guess in my years of research now and studying pesticides and uh, the impact that they have on our health and reading scientific stuff. I mean, I. I've got 53 new scientific papers that came in last week that I've been sifting through. <laughs> but um, when you understand the the weight of evidence out there that shows that these pesticides that you know we spray around our yards and that are sprayed on or you know on our food or in the product use of of growing of our food and and that we we bring them into our bodies. You know, they're found in our blood, they're found in our urine, mm -hmm. and they cause cancer and reproductive harm, Parkinson's disease, you know, infertility issues. A lot of these are endocrine disruptors, um, interfering with our hormones, interfering with our immune system. And 
I know so many people who have cancer and I know all of your listeners know so, so many people who have cancer. It's 40% of men and women in the U.S. now are expected to get cancer in their lifetimes. That's wow. what experts who study cancer have determined. And uh, yes, we're being told, you know, we can live with cancer. You know, we have all these great treatments and surgeries and, you know, but uh, but I don't think we should live with cancer. I think we should live without cancer. So um, the book is for, you know, cancer sufferers, people who I honor and I want us to be aware of that struggle and to move to a world where our kids and our grandkids aren't facing, you know, those odds um, as well. So, but it's also, you know, just written for anybody who wants to learn about, you know, what we're facing with these toxic chemicals, but also likes, you know, a quick read and, um, and an interesting legal drama. There's a lot of legal drama in there. I, <laughs> I kind of got sucked into the twists and turns that, uh, happen when you bring a really big, you know, lawsuit against a really big company and how, how you do that. It's, it's really yeah. kind of crazy sometimes. Yeah. It's definitely um, a page turner. And, and there is a part in the book where, you know, you get into the story of a, of a late night leak of important internal um, documents, Monsanto documents that were leaked to you. And then you actually made these um, public on the website of U.S. Right to Know the following morning. And of course, Monsanto was not happy about that and trying to take court action um, in response to this um, publication of, of those documents. So I guess, can you tell us a bit about why did you choose to publicize those documents, um, which have become known as the Monsanto Papers? Yeah, yeah, those those papers really have rocked, you know, the world in terms of regulators, lawmakers. Those papers have become profoundly important in exposing, much like what the tobacco industry documents did uh, for the tobacco industry. But they really built on the deception that I exposed in my first book, Whitewash, and these Monsanto papers were internal Monsanto emails and communications and strategy reports and things that they had to turn over to Lee's lawyers. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, part of this team that were bringing the litigation of lawyers and they turned over millions of pages, um, but Monsanto wanted to keep them all secret, confidential. They had to give them to the plaintiff's lawyers, but they certainly didn't have to allow them to be part of the public court system where mm -hmm. people like me or other reporters or really anybody who's interested could read them. So, you know, there's an interesting way that um, these lawyers were able to work through the system and work through a protective order and take certain steps. And in the book, I describe it sort of as um, leading Monsanto into a trap, basically, to mm -hmm. see if they would step voluntarily into this trap. And, and if they did, there was a trigger that would allow the plaintiffs to release a lot mm -hmm. of these documents. And, uh, you know, I, of course, knew all of this and was following this and so was aware at 12.01 a.m. on a certain date when these documents, um, when I could access them. And, uh, and so I did, and I wanted to get them up on the U.S. Right to Know website very, very quickly because I, I assumed that Monsanto would try to go to court as soon as they became aware of this and try to get them pulled back. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, and they were very angry and very upset. But these papers, as I said, they reveal so much deception that they have caused lawmakers and others around the world to say, hey, maybe we should look harder at this. Maybe we shouldn't be 
allowing such widespread use. Maybe this shouldn't be sprayed on our crops. Um, you've seen countries, Mexico right now, you know, Mexico, Thailand, other countries around the world have said, we want to ban this. We, we don't want this used in our food. We don't want this used on our farms. Um, Mexico's trying to ban it right now, or has said that they will. Monsanto's lined up, or Bear, their owner now, has lined up with the State Department, U.S. State Department, uh, and other arms of the federal government to try to force Mexico to keep using glyphosate, to keep importing it, to keep importing foods and grains with glyphosate residues on it. Um, so we'll see. But the Monsanto papers really woke the world up to the dangers yeah. of this. Well, the, the question that, that's kind of in the back of my mind, too, is what, how does corporate influence on government policy through lobbyists impact, for example, EPA rulings? Like, why hasn't the EPA done more to look into the safety of this? I mean, their job is to protect the American public. Um, and yeah. Were you able to to glean anything from these documents from the Monsanto papers around the EPA, or was it more focused on internal kind of cover-ups? What you see, and I, this is detailed not only in both books really, but mm -hmm. um, in the 1980s, there was a study that Monsanto, an internal, it wasn't public, but Monsanto presented it to the EPA and said. You know, this is about glyphosate, and you know, here we are, and it's a study on a bunch of mice, hundreds of mice, and it was part of what was required. They had to they had to do studies to determine the dangers or risks of this chemical glyphosate, and they turned it in, and the EPA scientists looked at it and said, well, this looks like it ca could cause cancer. You know, mm -hmm. we're seeing these rare tumors in these mice that were dosed with glyphosate and not in um, the the control group, the mice that didn't get it. Looks like it could cause cancer, and Monsanto immediately said. Nope. I mean, you see all of these in these emails. No, you're reading it wrong. Um, you or these these communications back and forth. You're doing an assessment wrong. Uh, we will tell you how to assess this study. And yeah. there's an interesting comment from an EPA scientist that says that's writing back to Monsanto saying, "Our job is not to protect Monsanto. Our job is to protect the public." You know, and your argument is suspect, and basically telling Monsanto that they were full of it. And this went on, this back and forth went on, Monsanto protested it. The EPA, ultimately the managers, the management, decided to override their own scientists and to side with Monsanto uh, on this. And their determination then that this chemical is not likely to cause cancer has been unchanged since, since then for all of these years, despite all of the evidence, all of the mm -hmm. other studies they still rely, our EPA relies most heavily on scientific studies that are presented to them by the companies that sell the chemicals. That's just the way it works. And, um, you know, it's, it's very unfortunate, <laughs> but that's, that is how the EPA works. And there's example after example with many, many companies of the EPA putting the corporate interest over the public interest. Mm -hmm. There are many examples that we talk about in my first book, Whitewash, that others have illuminated uh, the internal documents that came out during the court trial, during Lee's trial, through these Monsanto papers, show mo more evidence of collusion and uh, EPA r officials rushing to help Monsanto. The EPA official who was in charge of the cancer review, the newest uh, cancer review, 
of glyphosate that was being conducted in 2015, a man named Jess Rowland. These emails show that Monsanto considered him a friend, as somebody who helped them in the defense of glyphosate. Uh, they show Jess, you know, working, saying he can get a medal, he should get a medal if he can kill an outside review of glyphosate that a different federal agency was trying to do. Mm -hmm. uh, just example after example of the EPA really putting these interests first. We even have we even in, have an internal memo of uh, during the Trump administration where uh, the communication is that the White House will have Monsanto's back on glyphosate. That's the language. Uh, you won't have to worry about about anything. Um, so, you know, it's it's big business. It's billions and billions of dollars. It's a lot of support for lawmakers, and you know, there's a lot of lobbying money. There's a lot of campaign contributions. There's a lot of money that flows to keep these chemicals mm -hmm. on the market. Yeah, it's so frustrating and 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 disheartening. To see, and, and again, this is just, this is, you know, it's no longer just Monsanto. Now they're part of Bayer, which is like an even larger corporation. Um, and there's clearly not enough of a dividing line between policy and corporate interest and corporate influence. And this, of course, isn't the first time. Um, you know, there are other examples of defoliants. I'm thinking in particular um, during the Vietnam War era where Monsanto and Dow Chemical Company were both contracted by the U.S. government to produce dioxin. For the audience, dioxin is the kind of the chemical that you may know as um, Agent Orange, which was sprayed in Vietnam to remove the foliage, the leaves from from the trees, so that you had better visibility. And um, this is something personally important to me because you know I'm a, a amputee and I was born with multiple birth defects because my father had lots of exposures to dioxin um, during his um, his tour in Vietnam. And there have been many, many children born with these constellations of birth defects. And a lot of the research in this area has really been squashed and, and not allowed to um, really be investigated the way it needs to be investigated um, by more scientists. A lot of the research actually has happened in other countries because just we haven't had much done here in the U.S. Um, through our traditional funding mechanisms. And so I think we have to learn from these mistakes in the past. First, we have to fix our current bad patterns of, of spraying our environment with these really toxic chemicals, again, supporting an infrastructure in agriculture, which we know is, is you know, has major flaws when you're, when you're, you know, growing single crops in, at large scale, they're going to be more prone to disease or, or competition from other plants. And we know that's not the best way to go forward in ag. And this just is another layer um, that's added to that. Yeah, the dioxin scandal, scandal is really a way to refer to it uh, in the EPA, uh, you know, does illustrate sort of how the EPA has a long history of protecting these corporations. And there was, again, an EPA scientist, you know, who had worked there and was devoted. I I, I like to say, you know, I really believe I've, I've gotten to know so many scientists, you know, who are mm -hmm. veterans and they work there. They're not political animals. And these people really do seem very dedicated to what should be the mission, you know, protecting mm -hmm. public health. Um, but they keep running up against sort of the politicalization of the of the agency. But 
it was a female scientist who tried very hard to say this dioxin, dioxin this contaminant of, you know, this Agent Orange, uh, you know, is, is very toxic. And, you know, we need to do something about this and look at the science. And she got shut down just right mm -hmm. and left and disciplined and had to, you know, I think she got either five, it's in my own book, Whitewash, I can't remember now if she got reassigned or completely fired, but um, she had to bring an action against the EPA to get her job back. And, you know, it, it's a battle for these scientists to try to just do good science uh, that protects yeah. the public. And that's an issue that they refer to it as scientific integrity, really. And that's something that you see across, you know, all the federal agencies, really. Um, the Obama administration pledged to restore scientific integrity and put in all these measures, um, few of which really seem to work. Uh, the Biden administration has now sort of repledged, you know, we're going to we're going to do this. We're going to take a harder look, um, particularly at pesticide and chemical regulation within the EPA, because mm -hmm. they feel that it was so skewed under the Trump administration uh, in favor of corporations. But but the problems certainly are bipartisan. I mean, Democrat, Republican talking about um, there has been real um, lax regulation uh, that we see from our EPA over decades. Absolutely. And it's it's like you say, it's it's over decades. It's this is not a new problem. It's been it's been going on for a long time now. And I think I, I discussed a bit of this in my book. And for the audience, I haven't really talked much about the book. It's called The Plant Hunter. It'll be out October 12th. But I explore this topic of you know, environmental exposures to these toxins and how they personally impacted my life um, and my journey in science. Um, but also, you know, the things that we do to nature can sometimes have untold and long-standing consequences that we may not envision at this moment. But I think especially where you have a body of evidence as, as we do around products like um, glyphosate, we really need to take a closer look and start taking action. What can what can you share with us about you know more around the court case? I think there were something like eighty thousand court records um, documents that that were explored. Um, and you spent a lot of time with Lee and his lawyers. What are some of the what are some of the keys? Like I just can't imagine being this individual trying to take on this giant. Um, yeah. yeah, it was it was really hard for Lee. You know he. He was going, you know, through treatment, chemotherapy, mm -hmm. struggling. It, I describe a lot of his physical condition in the book and, and what he was going through. His type of cancer um, manifests on the skin. So his lesions and sores and, you know, everything was visible. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was incredibly painful for him to move, you know, to put on clothes, to put on shoes, anything touching these cancerous lesions on his skin, which would crack and ooze and bleed and you know, just, just horrible um, disfigurement um, and very painful for this man. And, you know, there's a scene, I guess it resonates with me. There are many, but, you know, where he's, he's being deposed by Monsanto's lawyers. He's got two days of depositions and he's trying to get himself there, but he's had chemotherapy and he's too sick and he can't make it to the first day um, of chemo, but he, but he shows up for the second day and Monsanto's lawyers are just grilling him, you know, why didn't you show up? What, you know, and he's telling him how much pain he's been in and they want to know why he didn't cancel his chemotherapy, you know, because he, he knew he had, <laughs> he knew he had these depositions and, you know, how dare he get his chemotherapy um, instead of being ready and, you know, for his, you know, it's just, 
and he and his lawyer end up storming out of the deposition. You know, there were just dramatic moments like that. But um, but I think, I mean, the real the real drama and the real importance of the trial was was these documents that came out from inside Monsanto, you know, that really showed the depth of not only sort of the collusion with EPA um, and their disregard really for people like Lee, but this this research that they this ghostwriting and manipulation mm-hmm. of scientific journals that are out there that you know are sort of the gold standard for scientists and regulators around the world to look to for real truth about mm-hmm. about you know chemicals like glyphosate and what we learned um, was that Monsanto it was a, a common practice they talked you know in many different papers many different years about uh, let's we're going to write a paper and we're going to have somebody else who doesn't work for Monsanto that will have their names on it so it'll look like you know they're independent they're unbiased um, we'll pay them some money uh, the paper will say how safe our products are um, you know and it will get published in these really prestigious journals and you know there there were there was also the things I felt so also really just alarming for the general public, you know, maybe doesn't read scientific journals, but uh, they were also ghostwriting magazine articles and <laughs> they had, they hired people to ghostwrite op-eds or letters to the editor that would show up in newspapers, um, you know, around the country. So if you're just reading Forbes magazine, for instance, and you see an article from a professor who's talking about all these crazy people who, you know, are worried that glyphosate could cause cancer and, you know, they don't know what they're talking about because Roundup and glyphosate is great and Monsanto's a great <laughs> steward of the earth. And uh, you come to find out that was ghostwritten by Monsanto, um, you know, from these internal papers. So, But these it, are actual professors is what you're it, saying that like, I mean, are there consequences for these people? Like, I mean, my goodness, it's, it's, it's disgusting. It's really, it's a disgusting abuse of public trust. Um, it, it does seem that way to yes, but you know they would say, as because we've talked to some of you know they would say well it's part of so it's it's important you know there is not a lot of public funding for professors you know and academics and so we need <laughs> private funding and it's known and it's become a very common practice for very large corporations to fund research at universities and to um, you know pay professors to you know, hefty fees for consulting or for speaking mm-hmm. engagements. You know, there was a professor at the University of Florida who had an arrangement for $600 an hour, um, you know, for some consulting that he was doing. His university was also getting money um, for programs to promote, you know, GMO safety. And uh, he's been a very big promoter of glyphosate. But they will say, well, we're not doing it because of money. You know, we're doing it because we believe it's true, you know. But, you know, there's another great that's in whitewash, um, these emails that uh, where one professor uh, at University of Illinois is writing to the chemical company saying, now, I'm, you know, you're flying, I'm flying there to speak to this group. Uh, remind me again where I'm going, what I'm saying, who I'm speaking to. They, the company prepared his PowerPoint for him, you know, the whole thing. But yet when he presents, it's as though it's his own work his own unbiased opinion he doesn't disclose that the funding is coming from the companies this happens all the time wow Um, and wow that's 
it's it's incredible. I I you know, I I work I've worked for some some Fortune 100 companies with my own labs research and I consult not for $600 an hour, but but um you know, there's there's definitely a hard line that that as far as I know, none of my colleagues have crossed, but there are people or that I have crossed, obviously. Um but you're right. There's a it, it's it's shocking, but yet it happens um, uh, of these influences. And and it's it is it is true that there's limited research funding and, and having industry collaborations can be useful. But you really have to have a very clear ethical, moral compass in your research. And it's it's saddening to see that there are people that don't. Yeah. Um, and, and transparency is really important. You know, absolutely. If, if there has to be corporate funding of research or academic endeavors, you know, then you need to be very transparent and it needs to be disclosed. And Absolutely. if Monsanto or Bayer or these other companies are being engaged in these research papers that are being um, published in prestigious journals, you know, they, that should be disclosed. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, there was a whole series of papers published in 2016 that Monsanto ghost wrote their own words in their own email that they thought it was important to ghostwrite these papers because they wanted to counter this international agency for research on cancer that found glyphosate to be a probable human carcinogen. So they talk about, we need to get some new papers published that say the opposite, that contradict yeah. this international agency. And when all these documents came to light showing they had ghostwritten this, um, the journal the journal publisher said, you know, the journal editor and publisher got into a disagreement and a dispute about whether or not these should be retracted. And there was a great deal of discussion about retracting them. They ultimately were not retracted, um, but there was an addition made to disclose Monsanto's involvement um, because of these Monsanto papers that had come to light. But, uh, you know, it is. It's extremely frightening. You know, we need science. We need legitimate, unbiased, transparent scientific research um, so we understand the risks that come with the rewards. Because certainly Absolutely. these chemicals do come with benefits. Mm -hmm. uh, farmers wouldn't use them if they didn't find some benefit. Um, but when does the risk outweigh the benefit? You know, and yeah. and as you increase your usage, does that, you know, that risk go up and the benefit go down? And what is the impact on not only human health, but environmental health, soil health, you know, water, air, pollinators, biodiversity, wildlife, you know, a glyphosate is sprayed a lot of time uh, aerially, you know, from the sky over forests for forestry management, you know, and what it's doing to white-tailed deer and other animals that are, that are, you know, eating and plants and things and being exposed. Um, it's just, it's, it's frightening what we're doing to our world. Yeah. I think, you know, I, I, some of my research is on a plant that's also targeted by glyphosate. It's called um, the Brazilian pepper tree. It grows as a, it's a noxious invasive weed in Florida, but it's interesting to me because it's also a plant that produces many health benefiting compounds that we're investigating that could be potentially useful as antimicrobials in the future. And I wonder how many other weeds are out there that, you know, are there other ways we could utilize these resources instead of just spraying more toxins into our, into our environment? Um, you know, so 
it's a long and complex story. And I, I'm just so happy to have the chance to speak with you and to read your fabulous book. So where can um, folks go to find um, the Monsanto Papers? Gosh, I think anywhere you buy books, right? Mm -hmm. That's what they say. Amazon, um, mm -hmm. Barnes and Noble, independent booksellers. Uh, it's, um, you know, you can get an ebook, you can get the hard copy, you can listen to it, an audio book. So, or Island Press, I should say. Yeah. <laughs> My publisher, you can go directly to Island Press and buy it uh, as well. Or you can go on my website and look at some of the reviews, carriegillum.com. Um, so, great. Yeah. Well, thank well, you so much. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I love being interviewed by somebody who knows their stuff. <laughs> you, you know this industry pretty well, obviously. Well, I, I, I learned a lot. <laughs> Thank Great. you. Great. You've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious, recorded on Skype. You can find this and all of our other episodes at foodiepharmacology.com. You can also access the video version of the episode at our YouTube channel at Teach Ethnobotany under the Foodie Pharmacology playlist. Thanks so much to the show's producers, to Rob Cohen and Christine Roth of Co-Conspiracy Entertainment. And thank you to you, our listeners, for tuning in each week. I'm so excited to continue bringing dynamic, engaging content around the science of our foods. Stay healthy out there and I'll see you next time. <laughs>